The reading is from John's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, what he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Well, good evening, everybody. It's a nice warm evening. It's a, quite surprised to see so many people. I just thought we'd all be in the, in the park getting the last sunshine and cricket in, but never mind. Hi, Tony. So, when... Paul asked me to preach this evening. He said, you've got a free hand. This is not the end of a series. It's not the beginning of a series. It doesn't fit into any theme. You can do what you like. Which is very risky of him, really, isn't it? But never mind. So given a free hand, um, I looked at lots of options and what have you. This reading is actually straight from the Anglican, Le Anglican lectionary, and it's the reading of the day. So we've had some nice traditional hymns, and now you're going to get a nice traditional sermon. A straight piece of exposition lasting about two and a half hours, and then we're good to go. John's Gospel, as looking around, I think most people here know, um, is slightly different to the other three Gospels. Um, the other three are very narrative. They just sort of say what happened, and that's it. John's is a bit more mixed up. It has the narrative, but it also has bits of commentary mixed in with it. It's got more theology, it's got more interpretation. And it's also got in there some things that aren't in the others. And there are various reasons why this might be. Uh, John was almost certainly one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, he certainly saw things that the other gospel writers didn't. And I think it's probably fair to say that some of the things that he put in, he put in because they went in the other writers' gospels. As regards his mixing things up, where he sort of puts in bits of commentary, and other, this is a classic example. And in the reading that we had there, the whole passage, um, or the, the, where it said from John answered his disciples thus, all of it's in quotes. 
so implying that all of it is a quote from John the Baptist. There are a reasonable number of people who think, well, actually, it probably stops at the point where I become greater and he, become, he must become greater and I must become lesser, is John's bit, as in John the Baptist, and the other bit is perhaps John the writer's part. Kind of doesn't matter. But the second part is quite definitely a commentary on the first part. And we see the same pattern um, in the preceding section of John's Gospel. If you nip back to earlier in chapter 3, you'll read the story of Nicodemus. It's got very echoey, I do apologise. Um, you see the story of Nicodemus, and then Jesus talks um, about you know, why you have to be born again. And then you get the famous passage, John 3.16, going forwards. So you've got people coming to the main protagonist, you've got a question, you've got the answer to the question, and then you've got some exposition, you've got some commentary. And this passage fits in the same way. So I'm going to start at the end of the commentary. Let's just start with the last couple of verses. So we've got verse 36. Whosoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That's the nub of it. If you forget everything else that I've said, which is entirely likely, that's the key part of this passage. That's the key part that John the Baptist is leading up to. That's the key part that John the evangelist or John the writer wants to say. Everything else leads up to that. That's really important then. It was really important now. Because if people don't know about Jesus, they can't accept him. Now you may also say, well, if they don't know about him, they also can't reject him. So therefore we shouldn't tell people, sorry guys, I'm afraid it doesn't work like that. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Unfortunately, we're all under judgment until we accept Jesus. Now, without going into deep theology, which frankly I'm going to get wrong, and there's an awful lot of stuff that, let's face it, we won't know this side of heaven. The nub of it from our point of view is that there's a lot of people out there, and we know, who don't know Jesus, and they need to come, and they need to accept him. They need to come and know Jesus. And that's part of our job, is to tell them about that. So if you forget everything else I've said, just take that as a reminder. It's no great spiritual insight you don't know, but just take it as a reminder We need to tell people about Jesus. We need to introduce him to other people. So, going back, therefore, to the passage, how does that fit in? With that in mind, I've got the wrong glasses on for this. What's going on? Well, the passage starts, as do so many passages in the New Testament, with an argument about religion. John was out, he was baptising, and Jesus' disciples were baptising elsewhere. And... John's disciples come along and say, or get into an argument with a certain Jew. Doesn't matter who he is, he's not named, but clearly he's somebody or another. And they're having an argument over ceremonial washing. Now, a lot of the New Testament, the Jews come across as being overtly religious and concerned about the nitty-gritty of theology, the nitty-gritty of that. They come to John the Baptist and they say, what's this about about, the ceremonial washing? What should the teaching be on this? And then they also say, and by the way, you know that bloke who you baptised? Well, he's over there and he's drawing bigger crowds than you. That's not fair, is it? Straight away we see two things, both of which are relevant to modern day churches. Theology is important. I'm never going to knock theology. Sound theology is really important. 
It's important if you're inside the church. It's really important. It helps us how we live our lives, how we should make decisions, what we should do. It can help us talking to people outside the church and say, no, this isn't a good way to live. Have you thought about this? But what you see time and time again with the Pharisees in the, Old, in the New Testament is they're using theology as a blocker. They're using it as a, you can't get to God because you haven't done this. You can't get to God because you haven't washed the right way, walked the right way. You've switched on a light or whatever. You've done work on the Sabbath. You can't get to God because of that. You'll notice that John doesn't even bother asking that, answering that question. He answers the other question about where people have gone to Jesus. He didn't even bother asking the one about the ceremonial washing. It's unimportant. The important thing is Jesus. He goes straight over that, straight over the nitty-gritty. Same is true for us. We can get into great discussions about whether this thing is a sin or how we should behave on that. And as I said, I'm never going to stop anybody studying theology. Study it. Be better at it than me, please. But theology is there to support us, to show us how to live, and then we can only use it to draw people to Jesus. Can't ever say to somebody, you can't come to heaven because you're this. You, until you've changed that, you can't come to Jesus. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'd rather say, I'm not sure that's right. Come and meet Jesus. He's a fantastic bloke, and then you and he can sort it out between you. Maybe I'm wrong, and if I am, I hold up my hand and apologize. But I'd much rather stand before God and say, these are all the people I tried to introduce, than have God say, you know that bloke there? You turned him away. That could be a really actually uncomfortable moment. So if you've got still strong theology and have strong theology, study that Bible, be in the hybrid groups, but use it to draw people in. And if you're going to correct people, correct gently. So as I said, John ignores that particular piece of theology and points straight to Jesus. He says, I don't care that Jesus is getting more people than I am. That's exactly what he's supposed to do. He says very, very clearly, I should become greater. Yeah, sorry, I'll just quote exactly. A person can receive only what's given to them from heaven. You yourselves can testify, I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. And then verse 31, sorry, verse 30. He must become greater, I must become less. Again, John's saying very clearly, that's where you go. Go to Jesus. If you're all my disciples, if you're all coming because of me, that's great, but go over there. In the unlikely event, the people who came here, especially because I'm such a good preacher, sorry, you're deluded. That's where you should be. John's reply is very insightful because John clearly had a successful ministry. He had a big church, but he was quite happy to give it up. He knew that he was unimportant. He knew that he was pointing to Jesus. That's the only thing he had to do. And then we get to the other part of the commentary. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks, from the one, speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. We're all of the earth. We all know our limitations. We all know what we're good at. Some of us have got really quite good talents. If I look around this room, I can see singers, musicians, engineers, all sorts of people. You've got really good talents that you use every day, day in, day out. You can take a degree of pride in that. God's given you what he's given you. 
you can use it. You can say, you know something? Actually, I'm not bad at engineering, or I'm not bad at whatever it is you do for a living, administration. I'm appalling at administration. I admire those who are, who can, who can do it, who can organize things. Those are talents. They've been given to us by God. We can use those. But we also know that actually when we speak, everything else gets mired. That expression, the miry clay, it clings, we're from the earth. So let's never get ideas above our station. Let's never think that Shirley Baptist Church is a fabulous institution. Everybody's got to come to Shirley Baptist Church. Hallelujah. So come to Shirley Baptist Church to meet Jesus. That's good. Anything else? Nah. John the Baptist wouldn't be approving, and I'm not sure Jesus would either. Again, that's no surprise to anybody in this congregation. We know why we're here. We know that our job is to bring people to Jesus. But it doesn't hurt to be reminded. It doesn't hurt if that's what the passage says. This is a very short sermon. I promised Neil it would be under two and a half hours. It is, comfortably. I'm going to touch very briefly on the passage about the bridegroom, mainly because it's so bizarre. It's the church imagery, or the imagery used in the New Testament about the bride and the groom, I get not uncomfortable about, but it doesn't kind of fit. It's just a metaphor that doesn't sit with me. Um, that's my weakness, that's not the Bible. This one in particular, um, I struggled a bit with. I struggled even more when I started reading commentaries. Because there are a couple interpretations of what the best man's or the friend of the bridegroom's job is supposed to be. I've read them both. Some of you know that Zoe and David, that's Anne's daughter and my son, are getting married next year. So I've read both his interpretations. I will be sending them to the best man. The first one is that the job of the, um, the friend who attends the bridegroom, the best man, was to effectively guard the, what do you call it, um, the bridal suite. There we go, that, that's, an, that's an acceptable term. Uh, and make sure that only the bride came through. And when the, bride, sorry, when the bridegroom came and he heard his voice, he said, excellent, bride can go in, nobody else can, I'm off. That's okay, that's a perfectly reasonable interpretation. There's another one where apparently the, uh, the job was slightly more indelicate, which was to not only guard the bridal suite um, and make sure that only the bridegroom came in, but wait until the bridegroom had indicated that the marriage union had been successful, and then to go away rejoicing. Now, clearly, I can't imagine any best man in modern 21st century Britain being prepared to put up with that, and I can't imagine any groom or bride being prepared to put up with that. However, in either case, leaving aside vast cultural differences, the point is the same in that the friend of the bridegroom is there purely to make sure that the bridegroom meets the bride. Once that's done, he's out of the picture. He goes away rejoicing. Again, our role is the same. If we're introducing people to Jesus, if we meet people who can introduce them, that's our role. Once they've come to Jesus, we can go away rejoicing. We can't take the glory, we can't take the credit, but we can go away rejoicing, and that's where we should be. So in summary, it's a very simple message. It's very, very simple. Our job is to introduce people to Jesus. No more, no less. 
where we've got head knowledge, use that. Use it to gently correct, but either way, use it to bring people to Jesus. If we don't have head knowledge, it actually, it doesn't matter. What we do have is a knowledge of Jesus. Use that. That's it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, when we study your scriptures, sometimes there are passages that are complex, deep, require a great deal of teasing out, require a great deal of thought to understand them. And other times, Lord, you just make it blindingly obvious what you need us to do. And we thank you, Lord, that this is one of those passages. We thank you, Lord, for a simple reminder of our place in your great plan. We thank you for all those who have gone before us, John the Baptist, the prophets, everybody through the last two centuries, Lord. Great hymn writers, bishops, preachers, humble men and women whose names we will never know. We thank you for everybody who was involved, who passed the word down, that meant that we're here worshipping you. We thank you forever who introduced us to you. And Lord, we pray for the future, and we pray for those that we will talk to, and humbly ask, Lord, for the blessing and privilege of introducing people to you. For yours is the glory, Lord. We are from the earth. You are from heaven. We may speak as people from earth, but you speak as one who is from heaven, who knows everything, who loves this world and wants to see every one of us saved. Amen.